Welcome to the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast brought to you by L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, where Rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners go and get engaged. 46 of them so far. That's so many. I know. It's a lot. There's so many that there aren't even numbers of former Sixers to represent them on L.L.'s Twitter. Uh, We're going to have to go to Summer League numbers too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 707 Walnut in Philly, always at LLPavorsky.com. My name is Spike Eskin, along with the hopefully well-rested and refreshed Mike Levin, mm. how you feeling, Mike? Uh, getting there. Yeah, I've been, I've been falling asleep to stuff more. <laughs> like, <laughs> could, could you be more specific? <laughs> no, no, that's uh, all I'm gonna give you. Okay. Uh, no, it's uh, you know, I I like watching movies and TV, and uh, I'm sleepy. I fall asleep to oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to. I can't wait till you get to my age when that just happens normally. <laughs> when that's not at the end of a long week, that's just you know life. So. Um, yeah. Today on the podcast, and we'll get to this in a second, we have ESPN's Kate Fagan to talk about her book, uh, What Made Maddie Run, but mostly talk about the Eddie Jordan era in Sixers basketball. <laughs> we'll get deep into Eddie Jordan. So uh, very pleased to have Kate. But before that, I have some bad news for you that I'm going to get to. And I don't mean the listener. I mean you, Mike. Okay. The, the podcast available on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Oh, I know the bad news. Yes. The bad news is we had a vote on the Right Stricky Sanchez Twitter whether you want us to continue reading one review per episode on Apple Podcasts. 57% of you say yes. I'm sorry, Mike. But What's wrong with you people? Yep. Sorry. All right, we'll do it. Okay. The so, people have spoken. That's fine. That's yep. fine. All right. This one, five stars from J J Flow Four. He says, In the theater of my mind, this is a podcast about the seventy sixers where quote Spike Eskin is actually Nick Stauskas and quote Mike Le- Levin is actually the great TJ McConnell. For what it's worth, I think these guys jumped the shark when they changed the theme song, but I still ride ride with them because of the genuinely insightful Sixers takes. Nothing like waiting through the first 20 minutes of non-basketball-related baloney, but they Mm. eventually bring the goods every single episode. Also, I miss Henry Sims and wish him well in China. Can you guys spend some off-season time tracking down the basketball careers of the classic process Sixers after they did their duty? I think that would be a great off-season episode, actually. Do you not? Some of the names, you know. Hollis Hollis just signed in uh, Olympiacos. Was that what it is? Right? Is that Greece? Yeah. Okay. I thought I thought that's what I saw. That's great. Yeah, I think that would be a good episode. I mean, I think uh, I think tracking down the maybe it's a combo episode. Maybe it's the enemies of the process episode with Unterberger, and we do the where are they now edition of of process Sixers. I think that would be great. So we also and I, we don't we only have a few minutes, so I think we're going to have to get to it after Kate. Is we have to talk about the uh, Ben Simmons airport picture. Scenario. And because you were so busy this week, I don't even know if you caught up on that. Did you? I saw – I got a text from 
in in my Dave and Tanner thread okay. that you that you were that you were in a fight with Ben Simmons. Not totally. That, but That's yeah. what I know. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll have to explain it to you, and and I have some genuine takes on this one. Some it, it is very. I think Mike Weber said it perfectly that this was the most. He said this is the reason why, like the process era Sixers thing is amazing that this even happened. Like that that the word between the internet and and uh, and all this, it was a. It was a very strange exchange, but I, mostly what I thought was strange were people's reactions to it. So people are so strange. Anyway, we also have the uh, the two sort of uh, the two Sixers schedule things that came out this week. One being that the Sixers will play on Christmas at noon at Madison Square Garden. So the Sixers return on Christmas after a lot of speculation that that might happening. And then, of course, you the, you broke that story, right? Was I, that a Spike Gaskin exclusive? I did break that story. Would you like? Wow. To, okay, so we only have a few minutes, and we'll also do relationship advice after Kate. Uh, so I, you know, in the few minutes we have before we get to Kate, I will I will without naming names explain how this story happened because everybody's like, you broke the story, you broke the story. I would say, and I've told you before that, and I think you even subscribe to this ninety nine percent of the time. When we hear things, they're mostly better to know than to break. Because my job is to not break is not to break stories. It's just to, you know, we do the podcast, and sometimes having background information is really, really helpful in sort of forming opinions and all those sorts of things. And the less, you know, it's also what I realize is that breaking a story is actually sort of nerve wracking because there's the you know five hour period in which you don't actually know if you're right or not. So this so news. The stories that I get, I, I would actually say most of the time don't come from a direct source. They come from something around a source, and then I have to go and confirm it somewhere. And the, the confirmation is really the tough part of it. So I actually got this from, I won't name names, but from a Ricky listener. was like, oh. yeah, so I won't say how it happened because I don't want to incriminate anyone. But somebody said, hey, have you heard this? And I said, no. And he was like, I'm pretty sure. And I was like, let me go see what I can find out. And I, I'll i say that I texted somebody who would know. And that person made a, uh, a very obvious non-denial that it was true. And, like It was one of those things where when I say, hey, I hear the Sixers are playing on Christmas against the Knicks. Is this true? It would be a denial a denial would, would, would be no problem or an I don't know would be no problem, but it was neither of those. So it smelled very real to me. So that's when I went with it. So, But the story wow. actually came from a Ricky listener, so I did break that story. But. Same guy who put, the, uh, who put the hinky stuff in the practice facility? No, different guy. Different guy. Different guy. Okay. <laughs> different guy. So, and then I actually thought it was funny. You know, There were a million people that were I got a bunch of like, oh, never trust Eskin or his father on this stuff when I tweeted <laughs> it. And I just wanted to go back and hate hate like all of those tweets. It's like, fuck you, buddy. I was right on this one. You got to um, put the uh, – what did Chris – Chris Haynes did the Hulk Hogan gif after the Gordon Hayward thing, right? Yes, yeah. Well, this was sort of like the really lame version of what Chris Haynes must have felt like during that whole Gordon <laughs> thing. Like the, yeah. the most insignificant oh, nice. version of you broke it. A schedule, you broke a schedule story. Yeah. Nice job, bro. Now, in our world, that's pre- it was a pretty big – when I tweeted it, I was like, ooh, this is a 2,000-like tweet. I felt it. I knew it was. Way to go. <laughs> Good ballpark. Yeah. yeah hey, well, man. Yeah. Bringing credibility left and right. Way to go. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, – and I would like to not, you know, 
The uh, Liberty Ballers always very uh, credits us with no problem. SB Nation proper really no. loves not crediting us. I know. I know. Yeah, it's very strange. So It's very strange. Wait, and, so let's talk about them actually playing on Christmas because we got to get Kate in a second, right? Yeah, in like literally a minute. Do you want to talk about it after or you want to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, I'll talk about it. All right. All right. So let's, uh, let's add Kate. All right. And add. How do I sound? Sound good to me. Mike, you hear all right? Yeah, I hear right. So the way we do it isn't all professional like your ESPN radio show is, is that, <laughs> is that when we call you, you're now, you're now officially on. So there you go. You're on the air. So everything you say from now on is on record unless you tell us otherwise. <laughs> oh, wow. We are already recording. Is that what you're telling me? Well, yeah, but I mean, I can take this part out. But once you say go, oh, we're no. good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No. And, and, and the, the suggestion that my ESPN radio show is professional is almost laughable. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had – look, the professional to me is that when uh, Kate was nice enough to have me on a couple of weeks ago, you had somebody else call me to put me on. So to me, uh, that is – Ah, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. That's a level yeah, that sounds, of professional. That sounds very professional to me. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a switchboard operator and like a 100 oh. number to call in. It was serious. Yeah. That's yeah, real. Yeah. It's a real deal. <laughs> So we have, as we said at the top, we have Kate on to talk about her uh, her new book, What Made Maddie Run, which is on a uh, a New York Times bestseller list, which is um, pretty incredible for you. Have you had time? I know it's been a, a pretty heavy media tour for you. Have you had time to sit back and um, sort of be proud of the initial success that the and, and impact the book has made? Wow. Yeah, that's actually very different first question than usual. Um, no, I haven't. I've discovered that I'm absolutely terrible at that. <laughs> and that even though I've said, you know, even though that sounds like an awesome thing to achieve and even the day the book was released is something I was looking forward to for a while. Cause I felt very strongly about the message of the book. I seem to do that thing where as soon as something happens, even if it's something I've wanted, I'm all of a sudden like, well, what, what's next? And it's, I need to be better at it because I know I haven't been like, oh my God, it made a list and that's super cool. I'm mostly like, I think the thing that I said right after was like, well, how do we get it higher on the list? And so I think I need to address that problem probably going forward. The, uh, on a on a personal level. <laughs> yeah. The, yes, on a personal level. <laughs> The uh, the book is a story about uh, a, a woman named Madison Holleran, who was a Penn student and a track athlete, who took her life a few years back. And you wrote a uh, an extensive piece that ended up in ESPN the magazine, and um, it it sort of gained steam after that. Um, the the family itself, one of the I I want to it's I I've never I don't know if we've ever had somebody on who has written a story like a true story like this. And I want to be able to ask you about it without telling the entire story. So um, so I want to talk about some things that, that I noticed and uh, bigger themes, I guess. One of the things that I think is is really interesting and what provides some of the, uh, the most sort of heart-wrenching um, inside look at it is that how much the family let you in and you are able to read through Maddie's like her emails and her iMessages and it ends up being like a real theme throughout, I guess, the, the difference between, you know, the, the public Maddie and the, the private Maddie. Did you, was there any part of it, even understanding that the family was very willing and that you were doing something to help, 
was there any part of it that while you were doing it felt really invasive and that, that it was something that you shouldn't be doing? Oh yeah. And I, I think, I don't, I, I think even up until this, well, all, all the time, it hasn't even stopped. I, I don't know how many sleepless nights I had in the two years of writing this book and then going through the editing process. And then like over the last few months, as we've, you know, decided how we want to like put the book out into the world. I mean, the whole time I've been terrified I did something wrong. It just it, it, something specific, even like, did I break some rule about how to write about suicide? I mean, I tried to be so diligent about it, but did I forget to call someone who, whose text message I included? Did, did I, did I miss like a really close friend who's not going to be blindsided by this book? I mean, I am still scared that the book at some point, like I made some mistake along the way. I, I, I feel pretty, I mean, I did everything I could to not make those mistakes, but I would be surprised if, you know, as I mean, the book's been out like 10 days or so now, but as more and more people read the book, like someone won't be upset by the book. I think the, what I kept trying to rely on and moving forward was reminding myself the reaction to the magazine story and how many high school, college age kids and parents were like, we we like we need to talk about this more. This was a this was a way that I started talking to my parents about struggles, you know, in high school or in college or even you know or even when you got older. So I um I know that that might not be like the specific question you were asking, but I I'm still worried about it because I don't want anyone to read this book and be a, you know upset to the point where like they think it impacted them negatively. I mean, certainly the book is really, there's a lot of threads in there where it's not easy to read, but then the takeaway being like, I wish this book didn't exist. I don't want anyone to feel that way. How do you write something like this and then get so deep into it and not be terribly sad all the time? Um, I'm lucky enough that for the most part I have like been blessed with like good mental health. I think everyone struggles to some degree at some point. I mean, I just actually just got back from London, Ontario to sit down with Royce White, trying to bring mm-hmm. this thing full circle. Right? Didn't, wasn't he like briefly traded to the Sixers? Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he, he was. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think we, we have this concept of like, oh, mental health and mental illness and like somehow they're synonymous and yet they they are and often but but people do recognize like the difference between them and I mean I think to say like I have like perfectly healthy mental health like that's never true of anyone throughout of their life so it was it was really hard for me writing this book and the, I, I try to always say like hard for me personally in a small way not as someone who had like a loved one die like I, I wasn't friends with Madison uh, she she was not my sister she's not my daughter. So that's a completely different conversation. But I think when you try and like peek into the dark corners of the world and like really try and go as much as you can on someone's journey to what I think is one of the most difficult places a human being can go, which is reconciling with whether or not they still want to be alive. Like you're, you're going to start connecting with people who feel that same way. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. Like I now it's something constant where I think about it. I I have so many more people in my life now who I have these conversations with, who I try to be there for. 
and I, I think of it as like a fuller human experience now, but there are times when I feel like you, you can't not, you can't unsee like some of those dark corners of, of the world and then of the human brain. You mentioned your mental health and I thought one of the, the things that I noticed was parallels between, uh, you know, your, you and your life and your first book, reappearing act and what you had to go through uh, as a college athlete, even even if you didn't have anything out of the norm, go through it, but you going through those things and then her going through um, trouble, you know, getting to college and being a student athlete. Do you think that people that young, even though people get through it, that people that young are really equipped mentally at all to be a, a student, a full-time student and a student athlete at the same time, or or is that something that has more of a negative effect than a positive one? I think that it. I think they are. I don't know that they're like equipped as in their own resources without help and without like being able to lean on other people. I don't think that it's just. I don't think there's like a a preponderance of the population who could who can just go off to college and it be like a really positive, healthy, like easy experience. I think actually more common than not is like your brain's not fully developed, right? And that's what studies show. So you, you end up making more spontaneous decisions. That's hard when you're on your own for the first time. Your, your identity is not fully formed. And oftentimes you've like decided on pursuits that you're not even sure yet you love. And then you're in an environment, whether it's college athletics and all of a sudden the physical and emotional strain on you is really high or if you've chosen a major and then you know you're you're immersed in like actually studying that thing for you know dozens of hours a week like these are all stress these are all stresses on young people I don't want to be but I don't want to be someone in like the next generation who's like yeah we kids you know kids can't do this now I mean you know now like this next generation of kids like they can't possibly handle like that the college experience I don't feel that way I just feel like the, the conversation around it for too long has been, this is going to be great. This is going to be easy. This is going to be the best four years. And, and then separately the conversation around ever like leaning on other people or asking for help that has always been seen not fully, but oftentimes as like weakness and like, you, you know, you got to overcome these things and that's how you get stronger. And so I think my takeaway was not like, wow, this isn't like, the way we set up our culture doesn't work. It's more like maybe we need to have more infrastructure around this transition, especially as kids seem to be struggling more with anxiety and depression. At least that's what the numbers show. Like let's maybe let's take a look at our infrastructure and put some other things in place that can help kids as they make this jump from, if they're lucky enough to make that jump from high school to college. You talked about this in the book some and in the article, but, uh, I think in, in going along with what you were just saying, like social media plays a huge role in how kids perceive the world and then want themselves to be perceived. Um, in in general and specific to Maddie, what what role did do you think social media played in in all of this? Um, I think it played. It, I think it played a small role. I think it exacerbated some struggles. I mean, and that, that was my takeaway in talking to her, a couple of her friends at Penn and her family. It exacerbated it in terms of like when she was struggling 
at Penn, I know she and some of her friends would like look at the Instagram accounts and I think Snapchat, I don't do Snapchat, so it's hard to include Snapchat in the book. I don't know if you guys are into it, but like it baffles me. So I know she was on it though. Um, and she would look at the Instagram accounts or the social media accounts of like older kids at Penn and she'd be like, but that's what I want my college experience to be. And I think she was, she was doing that in, in, in some capacity during her three to four months during that first semester at Penn. So I think I, I, I always make it clear to point out the the most important thread in all of this is the anxiety and depression that was triggered by the transition to college and what her parents now believe, you know, was a, a kind of brain chemistry change. And I think social media and some studies have shown that I included in the book, like when you are in a place where you maybe you are in a depressive state or something has changed in your brain chemistry, social media can have a really negative effect. Yeah. It can make you, it can make you wonder when, as you go online, you think you're going to distract yourself from it. You think, Maybe you're going to see the good, you know, the quote unquote, like good parts of life and like feel better. And what you end up feeling is like, how come everyone else is like dealing with this college transition or whatever's going on in life it seems to be doing great. And like, everyone seems to be in a good place. And then it, it simply exacerbates your own anxiety or depression. Like that's what studies have shown. And so I think that's a similar role that it played with Maddie was like this consumption of social media and when, when she was struggling, just holding up a mirror to her and being like, well, something's, something's wrong in my life. Yeah, I, I, I've struggled with depression in the past. And I, at least when, it, uh, when I go on social media now or I'm not in a great place now, whatever, it, it ends up being like a, it's not this person is doing this thing and then here's this other person doing this thing. It's like all of these people are hanging out. All these people are having all of these experiences and I compare like you add them all up and then compare them to just like your one thing. And like, that's, I think where you get into at least where you get into. Yeah, I, mean, like, I, get into I don't know. How old are you? I'm 27. Like, yeah. So, so I'm 35. I mean, so maybe when you were in high school, like you did have more social media. I don't know. I mean, like when I was in high school, I wasn't that cool. I guess one saving grace was like, I didn't know what other people were doing. Certainly yeah. at some point you heard like a week later that there was a party, but, it wasn't like the night of I could go on Instagram and be like chilling at home by myself. And then I'm not saying this causes anxiety or depression. I'm simply saying when you're a young person and that is triggered or you're struggling, being able to do that for kids nowadays and being able to consume so much of that online, I, I think we're just starting to find out. And we've seen some studies, like there was an article on the Atlantic last week. That's pretty eye opening about this next generation. And like, have we lost an entire generation? to social media, I think people are just starting to understand what that mass consumption, the effect that actually does have. Well, as it, as the resonant old person on this podcast, being older than both of Wait, you. Wait, how old are you, Spike? I'm 41. Um, oh, I what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I stayed out you of the sun. You seem so much younger, okay? Yeah, well, that, <laughs> I, sometimes that comes across as a compliment, and sometimes it just comes across as a, <laughs> I, wear too, I wear hoodies too often for a 41-year-old. The uh, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a teenager now with all of this. Like, it doesn't, as many, as many benefits as the internet and social media provide, it seems as, as scary as high school was for me, and it was a scary time, and I, I don't think I enjoyed it. I think I'd enjoy it less now, you know? Um, yeah. There was a there was an article I read on 
NPR from NPR with a uh, a psychologist from San Diego State that did a study that sort of said that um, it took it sort of even past social media and said that young people are on the verge of like sort of an unprecedented mental health crisis. And it was mostly it was because of phones completely. And I thought this was something that also showed in the book, too, that forgetting about showing the appearance of um, of. I'm okay to everyone. Even one-on-one conversations that you have with your parents, you can hide better over text message. And she talked about, the, the psychologist talked about the parallel between the amount of the increased loneliness that teenagers show in studies from 2012 till now and the increase in like cell phone usage, you know, uh, from yeah. 2012 till now. And it, it's, do, do you see, I don't know, I, I sometimes wonder how we even end up getting out of it because there's no way it's positive. I think we could probably all agree on that, but I don't know. I don't know what the way out is. Yeah, I I'll try. And, I mean, I, there's a couple of points in there. I think at the end, I'll try and connect it back to Maddie. But from a personal standpoint, I am at a place where I don't know anymore what the positives in any regard are when it comes to social media. I think in the first couple of years, it was like, wow, like, it's really great to stay in touch with high school friends. I don't know that I even feel that way anymore. I think it's been really challenging over the last couple of weeks because I've convinced myself there's an absolute necessity that I'm on my phone constantly. It's like this, it's like this swirl of Twitter, Instagram, mail, Facebook, and then, like, a Google search to like stay on top of everything that's happening. I've convinced myself, like, I better refresh my email every, you know, 15 minutes or I'll miss something really important, right? Like someone will be like, hey, can you do this radio hit for the book and I'll miss it. And I've been the most unhappy I've ever been over the last two weeks because I don't, I I get off my phone after like three hours of looking at it and I know it makes me anxious and depressed because I'm not living in any sort of present. And I think it's a pretty common occurrence and a pretty common knowledge for people like when you're living not in the moment or in the present. That doesn't mean to be spontaneous, but simply like being present in your own life with the people around you and seeing the world properly. Like it's not good for your mental health. I actually had a moment like last week, I'm like walking home from the subway in New York. I've been on my phone the whole walk. And then I looked up and there's a city skyline. And for a couple seconds, I thought it was like the Truman show. Like it was an, like a hologram projection. <laughs> and I was like, this is like, I couldn't help but think like fast forward 10, 20 years. And like, that's kind of how people feel all the time. So, so that's like my own. So I, I completely agree with you in like this constant absorption of social media technology, especially for younger people. Like they're just de- like de- deteriorating effects that come from it. And then um, to your point, like some of the most eye opening anecdotes and information that I tried to you know study and then put into the book about, Madison was like looking at her iMessages and believing at first that there would be like rich information about her day-to-day experience and show some sort of storyline about what happened. And instead seeing like a lot of text messages that were like, Hey, I don't like it at pen, but they were all punctuated by emojis. And you could clearly see that the response to Madison's text, even if it was like, I don't like pen, like I'm really struggling with track, like monkey covering eyes that the response to whoever she was from, whoever she was texting was like an inability to really cut through those emojis and see any sort of desperation or true, um, or true, like 
panic in Madison because an emoji just softens everything. Right. And I think the way that, that, the way that like we're all communicating, it's, it's not even young people, like all of us, it's not, I mean, it's not a way that you would actually communicate with someone in person. In person, you would, if I said I hated something and I'm sitting with you, Spike, like you would read all my body language and follow up and, and hear that it was important as opposed to monkey covering eyes. And then you're like, well, seems like she's doing okay because I got like the LOL monkey covering eyes. Right. Well, that, and that's, um, I guess the, the last book point uh, I wanted to ask you about was um, the, um, it, you know, the, the book's not just about her. The book's about the people around her and her family. And there's a, a passage in which her, her dad is taking her back to school and can tell that there's something wrong, but maybe can't tell to the extent of what's wrong and then doesn't really know what to do. You know, you can't stay and watch your, your daughter at college go through every class, even though, though things aren't going so well. It's, uh, I don't even know what the question is, but to, for, yeah. for the people around her to be able to, like, what they're to do in a situation like this and what are the questions to ask and, you know, and when is, what are the what are the, the signs for, like, this is really, really bad as opposed to this is just something she's going through? The, the most eye-opening thing for me in, in reporting it and talking to all of them was how heavily they leaned on the concept of time, that they had it, and that... Because Madison, certainly there, there were like some red flags as she was growing up. There are certain moments, you know, there's some, it's something about her nature that was a little more introspective. I mean, these things are so granular that I, I, it's even hard to say they would be red flags. But so you're looking at a friend of theater who, for the most part, had excelled and seemed um, on top of life until this transition to college. And so her friends and family are thinking, well, Yes, we know she's struggling. Yes, we're trying to get her help. But are we hitting, like, the panic button? Like, this, you know, we need to bring her home now. We need to, like, have her in our sights all of the time. No, because you're thinking, time. I have time. Like, this has been a couple months, but, like, we're going to figure it out because it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been, like, drawn out in years. And, and then all of a sudden you're like, do we have, you know, the quantity of time we think? And I think it was eye-opening me to talk to professionals and be like, you have no concept of what, quantity of time you might have if you see someone struggling like some people you know can live with depression get help and their whole lives and you know they can get better and find the good times again and for other people it can be very very quick and so I think there was that key point of like time for them and then there was like I don't know that any of them felt like they had there you go dog barking i don't know that any of them felt like they had the full picture i think they all like had little clues and there there was no like sit down here's everything that's going on here's the full picture and now like please help um and that was like hard for all of them but i think it was just in retrospect they were like we're not going to find the why and none of us are like to blame for this because there there was no like I think people think that they're going to get some sort of full picture and then it's like you either act or you don't. And it's never like that. It's simply like trying to point out a variety of variables of symptoms and pointing out to people like just always kind of 
reach out and say, I'm here for you. I mean, but that's, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's so hard because there was reading Madison's story. If somebody goes into it and they think I'm going to get a full clear picture, I'm going to have the catalyst. I'm going to have the why then going forward in my own life, I'm going to avoid that catalyst. I'm going to avoid that why and everything will be fine. Like that's not the takeaway. Like there are so many things at play and it's more, it's more, the whole, hopefully the takeaway of the book is more like, we're never going to have like, this is the one thing we're just going to hopefully look at the infrastructure of certain places, try to be more available, try to have better conversations. And those, those all seem like nebulous and vague, but like that is the takeaway. Yeah. There's a, there's also a segment <clears throat> before we pivot to the, some Sixers stuff. There's a segment of Sixers Twitter that uh, is also like depression, Twitter, anxiety, Twitter, like talk, like talks pretty frankly about that stuff. And that is something I will stand up for social media about. Like there is a good, uh, community level to it of feeling you're not alone it can work against you also obviously but but there is a other people are dealing with this thing also and that makes me feel right. okay or not crazy um for the people for young people in that in that world uh that that care about that whether they're in college or just out of college what do you want them to take away from this book um and maddie's story yes i mean if it's if it's like students high school college students uh, um you know, the takeaway is going to be different depending on where you are in your own life and how you're feeling in your own life. I think one of the takeaways I hope is like, there are a lot of communities out there. I mean, the one that I've connected with that I think is awesome is to write love on our arms. And I think I've connected with it because I feel like Madison would have connected with it in a way where you're like, it's not clinical, it's not cold, it's not like the stigmatized, like if I talk about the fact that I'm struggling and with my mental health, like it, does that push me over here outside of like the cool cultural space where you want to, you know, have friends and feel like you're involved? Like I think there are communities out there. It sounds like you just mentioned one with, you know, the, whatever faction of Sixers Twitter. Like that's another one that it's trying to make it, you know, it's in the music industry and it's trying to be like look there's a community here and it's not ostracized so i hope that there's some of that as a takeaway for a kid i mean it's not like hey get off your phones and it's that's not like the message of the book it's more like let's all just be a little more okay with like leaning on people sometimes because i Mm -hmm. think especially in the sports world it's like you got to figure it out yourself like if you don't clear hurdles, like you're never going to get better. And it's like, that's what sports are about. And so for the sports world, it's more like, sometimes you do like lean on other people and that's, and that's okay. So I'm hoping that that's part of the takeaway for like the younger generation. The the book is, uh, is pretty emotional and is a a good read. So I appreciate you writing it and coming on to talk about it. We cannot let you go without asking you some (laughs) actual basketball questions though. Are you, are you prepared? Do you have time? I don't. I oh. have time. Okay. Whether or not I'm prepared. Oh, okay. All right. Is will be it will be fascinating because I'm more like an around the horn sports writer now. Where like yes. if you've got the one question that don't drill down with like the eighth man on the bench. No, that's no, 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 no. That's no. when I'll get. That's when I'll struggle. Okay. So the first one about Eddie Jordan's braces. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> actually, that's a uh, I, the the first question I had was actually sort of related to that. So. A lot of the, and uh, I'm, I'm going to try to put this in a way that is definitely about you and not about the, so 
be patient with it. A lot of the press mm -hmm. with ESPN recently has been about who is not working there and um, the number of jobs that are not there. But I would say that while that's been happening in a quieter way, but uh, I think some in a in a good way, there are some people over there, uh, yourself being one of them, Pablo Torre being another, who's a, a, a friend of the podcast, I would say, who have had a, <laughs> a brighter light shine on them in the last you know year or two years. Um, I guess what how has that been from you to for you to go from you know just writer to uh, around the horn person to sort of a feature person on ESPN and how do you see it evolving? Um, I think I think whatever it was a few months ago when we had all the layoffs, I think the main takeaway from the conversations I had internally were we want to try and focus more on people who can do things in a lot of different mediums. And that's like, a, I mean, that's been going on for like the last decade in sports journalism. I think that held true for what happened, except I, I think the basketball angle of what happened with ESPN and who's covering for ESPN was like a little bit different because of Adrian Wojnarowski coming on board for ESPN. So I don't want that to sound like people that were let go from ESPN who were, who were part of our basketball coverage. Like that was a separate thing entirely. Um, but for, for, for me personally, I mean, I, I've always wanted to be someone who told stories that happen to be about athletes and not, I, I never wanted to be part of like the news breaking day to day coverage. Like, I don't think I was very good at it. I think even if you look back on my Sixers coverage, I leaned really heavily on basketball observation on like diligent work that came from like assessing the game and not necessarily being like a day-to-day -day, here's like the inside scoop of like transactional Sixers. I mean, I even like, I think Henry Abbott was the one who broke the, the Sixers sale um, whenever that was like six, seven years ago to Joshua Harris. And so for me now at ESPN to shift more into parts of like E60 and outside the lines, like that's always where I've wanted to be because I'm really bad at like, day-to-day -day sports coverage it's just not something that like inspires me and what I always wanted even with the Sixers if I'd stayed there I would have tried to shift into being more like feature storytelling long storytelling because like the beat was just not something that I was going to be able to do longer than like the three four years I did it it's it's interesting you say that because I you know and I would I would think you know one thing that social media does is it lets you know that people here that there's a reverence for you among Sixers fans like they all remember you very well and in a positive way uh one do you do you notice that do you hear it do you ever read it and two why do you think it is that I know why I think it is but why do you think it is that they remember you in such a positive light um I do notice it and I'm really appreciative of it because um, I know Phillies are really, media-wise, like, Philly fans are harsh, right? And I think because they want someone who's working hard and who's not afraid to tell them the truth about their sports teams, um, I, I think that's probably why they remember, like, me covering the Sixers fondly, if we use that phrase, is because it was all I did for three years. Like it was my whole life. And so I think even though I made certain mistakes and I don't, I don't think I was great in terms of like breaking news. I think they really got an inside look at the team. I think they really 
hopefully like some of the stuff I did help them watch the games a little more closely or differently because it's something I wrote. Um, and I, and I think even though some of the mistakes I made are wrapped up in trying to tell them the truth about the team, because I think there were times like I would do things differently if I was covering the team. Now, I think they really felt that I was like, I was doing the actual definition of what a beat writer should be, which is like to be the eyes and ears of, of the city, not affiliated with the team within the locker room and practices and on the road during games. And like, I really tried to honor that. Like I, even though it made my own life harder a couple of times, I tried to tell them like the truth about what I saw in practice and how I truly felt about certain moves and coaches and, um, and I think that they respected that. And so hopefully that was the takeaway. And like, that's some of why they remember those three years fondly. It also might be because you were the second best player on that team after Iguodala. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, yeah, they, they knew that, like, as a short shooter, I could shoot the point rolls. Like, I understood the movements on the court. But, yeah, they were, they were not great teams in retrospect, huh? No. No. I mean, we so I, I had I was running uh, – it was early days of the blog Liberty Ballers at the time when you during your era, and, uh, and we were frequently calling for them to tear it down and rebuild. And before – uh, before that happened, you got out, so we didn't really get to hear much of your process Sixers thoughts. What What were your? Now you have some benefit of hindsight and and the fact that Embiid, Simmons, and Fultz are on the team, and they look they look very good for the future. What was your thoughts right. gen- generally about the Sam Hinkie era, and uh, and how do you feel going forward? I felt. Strongly that Sam, and I think I tried to say this at certain points. So I'm like, I do a hot takedown blog with 538. Some of it is the benefit of hindsight, but towards the end, my last year covering the team, I remember writing a few things that was like, wh- like, what's the point here? Like, what's the point yeah. of like, don't try and convince me that like, you know, re-signing Lou Williams is going to get you guys from, you know, the seventh seed to the two seed. I, I kind of remember feeling that way. I mean, it took me a while just to grasp what was happening in the NBA. Like my first season, and I'm trying to be as transparent as possible here. Like the first day I was on that Sixers beat, I like, I, I haven't watched the NBA. I watched it all throughout the late eighties and through the nineties, but like starting at about 2001, cause I, I had been a Knicks fan growing up until about 2005, 2006. Like I was working in a random outpost covering high schools and I didn't watch the NBA. So my first day on the beat, like they had to explain to me that when you traded someone, you had to take back value. Like these are simple things that I didn't know. And so my first year, I'm like trying to get a gauge on what is happening. I'm giving you a lot of background here, but like, I remember they signed, uh-huh. Kareem, they signed Kareem Rush yeah. as like, probably like the third guard just to like have a signing. And like, I was talking to Rob Polinka, who was Andre Iguodala's agent at the time. He could sense that I thought signing Kareem Rush, like, meant they weren't going to, like, re-up Andre Iguodala. Like, these were the things that – and he was like, Kate, I just want you to know, this is like, Kareem Rush is not going to impact, like, because then they gave, like, Iguodala, like, an $80 million contract, I think, that yeah. next year. So I was really learning on the fly. So it wasn't until my third year there that I really started to understand the bigger scope of the NBA, how you had to operate to get better. But by the end of that, I was like, nothing that they're doing makes sense in terms of, 
they were consistently trying to tell you, like trying to convince you and the fan base of something that was, was not happening internally. And I said so separately, I thought Sam Hinkie was at least an outsider who had a different plan. Because the one thing I felt by the end of the Sixers beat writing time was like, they just, they had a bunch of guys in there who like were part of the NBA world and like didn't seem to think any differently. It was all kind of like no risk taking because my whole point here is to like keep myself on the GM or the coaching treadmill and the recycling treadmill. And so I thought Sam Hinkie was someone who just did not give a fuck about that. And to me, that would be the most exciting thing for the Sixers. And I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big Sam Hinkie fan. And I think both you guys are too, simply because it was like, let's do something drastically different. And even if it's an epic failure, we're not in the same place that we were year after year after year. Yeah, I'm going to lead with something good, and then I'm going to uh, expose a uh, an old bad take of yours that I shared. The, some, the, the, <laughs> the, the something good was the, the two, I would say my two favorite things you ever did was one, Eddie Jordan was like, he was probably a very nice person, but he is the worst head coach I've ever seen in life. And nobody pointed out. So you were the only one saying that he wasn't doing a good job. It was it was only you. You were the only writer saying that he wasn't doing a good job. So that was great. But my favorite thing was your you weren't even a beat writer for the Sixers anymore. And you wrote a blog about how all the players hated Doug Collins, basically, like how he he sort of he sort of uh, stabbed Iguodala in the back. And it was like one of my favorite things that you ever did is that you left, but you were still you still, you couldn't let it go just a little bit. <laughs> Did you remember that? Uh, yeah, I remember that. I mean, okay, all right. Uh, I remember both those things very well. I mean, okay. did not make my, like, life easier. Yeah, I <laughs> Neither of those things did. Yeah. But I, I don't need to elaborate on that. But, like, I I still had so many players on those teams because I, I was bad, bad, bad reporting, like, internal, like, coaching structure or, like, GM that was not my strong suit. My strong suit was like knowing the players well, which is good, right? I mean, it, it, that's good as long as you have the balance. And there were times where I, I could see that some of my reporting was out of balance. It was like I was really good with the players, but I wasn't good with the front office. And that's not ideal. And so I think when I alluded earlier to like some of the mistakes I made, it came from being out of balance with like where I got my information. Right. Well, so here, but the Eddie Jordan thing was simple, like observation. Yes, yes, it was. It was just something. I wasn't even. I was a rock radio DJ, and I was like, "Hey, this guy's not doing a good job." So if I could see right. it, I think it's. Um, but the the bad take with and there was a time when there was a rumor that the the Sixers had explored an Andre Iguodala for Monte Ellis trade. Now Ugh. I love Monte Ellis, but I remember you being in favor of such a trade. I was in favor of such a trade. Do I remember this correctly? I was not. You wait. Who was in favor? Spike. Did you say you were in favor? Of I it was. Too? In, I was in favor of it, but I also remember you being in favor of it. I think I might have been in favor of it, but like, and I don't know how I explained myself, and maybe it's it's kind of you guys to give me a chance to like explain myself now with like tons of information and time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, I was not in. I was not in favor of it, like purely from a basketball standpoint. It, I was more in favor of it because like. I thought Andre Iguodala would be a better player elsewhere. I didn't think that he was all that happy in Philadelphia. Yeah. And even if Monte Ellis is an inferior all-around basketball player, and maybe it was the environment in Philly would have made anyone be like, why? I'm, I mean, I'm mired in mediocrity here. And maybe he would have felt that way as well. But it was like, oh, it's different. It's a change. And I didn't, 
I didn't feel like Andre Iguodala, and I think that's been proven right. Like, should have been, nor do I think Monta Ellis, but, like, should have been the go-to guy. Even though I love Andre, like, I still, I believe I get along with him really well to this day, but he, he clearly needed a different, like, cast around him to come forward and be the kind of player that I think we all saw, like, a really amazing basketball player who needed to be around scoring talent. But, yeah, I don't know why I was in favor of it. Like from a basket, I, I hope I, I hope I wasn't. I don't know. There's probably some piece I wrote, but I hope I wasn't in favor of it from a pure basketball standpoint because that would be ludicrous. But I probably have numerous bad takes. Well, like, I'm I'm glad that's the only one you can think of. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look. Given, I I would say that the bond that you and I share is a love of John Starks. You know, and I think there is. Oh, I the, know there is. There, though, though there is not, I would not compare the players really. There is something in the uh, in the John Starks universe that I think Monte Ellis, an irrational confidence that they both had, that I think Monte Ellis had. So maybe that clouded your judgment. Yeah, I mean, could there be anything worse for a team than like a really streaky shooter? And yet, like that's what I like. I, I so for some reason I love the concept of being like seven for nine one night. And like one for eleven the next night. Yeah. That's what I grew up on, Spike. Like that was my jam all throughout the nineties. So uh, you mentioned Royce White and going up to interview him. I can't let you get away from here without at least talking about what's up with Royce White. How was that interview? How's he doing? <laughs> Is he coming back to the Sixers to become like poor man's Dario Saric? What are we doing? <laughs> well, actually, let me let me ask you guys a question first because. The whole Royce White saga went down, I think, like a couple years into my ESPN tenure. And, like, I wasn't yeah. really covering the NBA. So my general takeaway, going up to London, Ontario, because he's playing in the Canadian Basketball League right now, was, okay, here's how I would have given you the top line on Royce White. Got drafted by the Rockets, like, has, like, anxiety issues over flying, couldn't figure out how he could be an NBA player and still get on a plane. And eventually the Rockets were like, this isn't going to work. Like, that was my takeaway. What was your guys' takeaway watching the whole Royce White saga? In that the was game? that was pretty much it. It was, uh, and then he got traded to the Sixers soon after, along with Furkan Aldemir. And I think was Spike was it you? Someone it might have been you, Spike, who was basically like, "Oh, I I heard that the trade was actually for Aldemir." And Royce White was just a, a body. Well, yeah, because Aldemir, Aldemir shared and I think shared a, a European agent with somebody. Um, I, that, that is what I had heard, that it was that Royce White was the body. And uh, similar, I would ag- agree, Kate, with what you said. There was, a, there was actually an interview with Royce White that Chuck Klosterman did that was a uh, – that I, I think Royce White meant well. And when he was talking about mental health for NBA athletes and how – imbalanced um the treatment was i think it's you know it becomes more and more appropriate and he was right but i also but i also think that it was sort of not a cover but he was he was like well i'm not going to be able to play i can't do this so i might as well pivot and make it about this instead of about that and i think there were both things going on at the same time so i think he realized that he wasn't going to be able to do it and tried like was looking for, you know, was in the, he was a young guy. It was in the process of finding himself and finding, you know, and trying to talk about mental health in a, uh, in a more, in a more exposed, expository way. So. 
Yeah, so that's an astute observation because in going up there, I mean, we talked for like three hours through this E60 piece. And 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 the 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 caveat and what I'm about to say is like we haven't yet talked to like the Rockets or the NBA. This is simply like Royce White. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in in retrospect, what he what he was trying, what he says the whole Rockets issue was about was like him standing on principle for the simple fact that there was absolutely no mental health policy that he would be able to point to if he joined the Rockets, if he went to training camp and then played. And, uh, you know, he's like, I'm not actually that, I don't have panic attacks flying. I certainly get some anxiety. I would prefer to drive if it were within a five to six hour radius, but I'm capable of flying. It was simply like, I didn't, I didn't feel at the time that I wanted to show up and play for the Rockets when there was like, nothing on the books about how they should interact with me or other players who might struggle in some capacity. So in retrospect, he's like, this was some kind of principled stand. And it's, and, and I think now, so, so I asked him, I'm like, well, now would you go play in the NBA, even if they don't have, if, even if they still don't have a policy on the books? And he's like, of course I would. Like I was young. I, I, I thought that this was the right thing to do. And like, I was standing for something, but in retrospect now, like, I would go play in the NBA. So I think we have to still report it out more fully because I think you're right. There's a gray area there between like a young kid and this is overwhelming and how are you going to navigate it versus like now let's make it about like a principled issue as opposed to just truly struggling in some capacity that I don't think we quite know yet. I, yeah. I think Klosterman described him in the article as um, – it was. It's an interesting interview. It's not that long, but it's interesting. But almost like a uh, he talked about mental health and depression as a uh, an eighth grader who just did a huge report on it would like he had he hadn't completely he had a lot of information, but he hadn't completely thought out what the uh, the repercussions of of what that was um, because yeah. you know there was at one point where he said that he believed that like. 70% of NBA players um, had mental health issues. And Klosterman asked him, well, doesn't that just make it the human condition then? You know, like, doesn't, then, isn't that just then how people are? And I don't think he totally had, had thought that through. So that's sort of where he, st- he stood to me at the time. Yeah, I think he's a, he was evolved a little bit on, like, processing all of the information that I, I think he absorbed during that time. Because he yeah. certainly has, like, more advanced positions on it. And, like, I, I am, he's, he's, super super smart about the issue even if you disagree with him you're like he makes you think in a way that's pretty interesting well i'm not going to ask you uh to any questions about furkan korkmaz uh eighth man on the sixers (laughs) but i will ask you i will ask you for a uh an around the horn kate fagan win prediction for the sixers this year lay it on the line what do you got Okay, because I just, before we start that, like, most of the things I say on Around the Horn, they go to a general audience who is not going to do the work later on to hold me to my prediction. <laughs> your audience... These people will. ...will yeah. do the work yeah. to hold me to my position. But I will do it anyway, because I've, you know, I've been conditioned over the last couple of years. When somebody asked me for a prediction, I'm not, I'm in the prediction business now. So, I actually, I'm, I'm bullish on the Sixers, but to me, at, that, at this point, that means, like, 40 wins. That's what okay. I would go. If I was writing the Deep Sixer blog today and I was putting together like a 1,500 word post going into training camp, I would be like, this would be my average. I would be like, here is what I think the general result will be this year. 
if there aren't any catastrophic injuries, I would say 40 wins. That's what I would say. And then I'd be like, with the outside chance of 43 wins and the mm-hmm. low chance of like 30. I think so, that's fair. But I would go with 40. Is that good enough? 40 and 42? I feel like that's, that's ambitious, but also given the Eastern Conference, not outlandish. Do you know the last time the Sixers were over 500 in a full season, um, not the lockout, not the lockout shortened season? I think one of the years that I covered them, they were like 42 and 40. No, you got oh, you, you got two 41, you got two 41 and 41 seasons when you did. Were there. I okay, I thought so. So then it would have been, it would have been probably with like 2000 with Iverson, maybe in like 2006. 2004, 2005, Jim O'Brien was the head coach. They were 43 Jim and 35. I was going to guess 1967. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was about that. And I get my final question is this because I've been thinking about this a lot since we uh, since you said that you'd come on. The one player in the NBA currently that like who would be if there would be one guy in the NBA right now that you would say reminds you the most of John Starks, who would that player be? <laughs> oh man. Okay, as a as a lead in, as a you know, a rambling until I can think of somebody like he. That type of player is not prevalent much anymore, right? right. Like, yep. There are just aren't many guys who are streaky and don't do a ton of other things. Well, Fox is a decent rebounder at times. Yeah, he do you made have somebody he, in mind before well, I. He was he was underrated. I think he was he made underrated entry passes. Like he was very good at making the Patrick Ewing entry pass, and he was a really good defender. I'll say that like his player type doesn't really exist. It's more of a combination of players. But I think yeah. right. his attitude reminds me of Pat Beverly. Reminds me of his attitude. Um, I, okay. unfortunately I think, you know, I don't like Russell Westbrook at all, but I think there's, there's a similarity there, even though I don't like him, but he's sort of a, combi- yeah. he's a combination to me of Pat Beverly and Isaiah Cannon. And that is why I love those two <laughs> players. So those and, are and like young, young Lou Williams, maybe. Yeah. But like, like Starks was such a hothead. He was like the number one hothead in the history. I've never seen a guy. Yeah. So. You're right. I'm glad I escaped like coming up with a combination of NBA players because, I, I, as you will see, you pulled one guy that's pretty popular and I should know, and then another guy who's like must be the like the seventh man somewhere. Who did you say? Yeah, Isaiah yeah. Who? Isaiah Cannon. He's like the twelfth man or thirteenth man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was <laughs> like this is going too deep NBA for me right, at this right, point right. now. Yep. Like, I, I like it. I just come. I was like, like I was going through like. He's not like Harden. He's not like Curry. Like that's how deep I was getting with yeah, this sure, sure. comparison. That's fair, so that's fair. That's fair. Well, uh, last question: Do you oh, do you still do you still play ball at all? And how do you reconcile? If you do, wait, answer that one first, and then I got a follow up. I go. I live near Q Q in Brooklyn, which has like five blank courts and like there's two good games that run on like the A court there. I never play pickup anymore. I go and I shoot. Um, but I don't play pickup. I, why don't I play pickup? I I don't know. Like, but part of it is scheduling. Like, if I wanted to join a league, it'd be like you have to be here every Thursday night, and then I right. miss eight games in a row. And then part of it is like I love basketball, but like I don't like I'm not obsessed with playing it. Like my dad's obsessed with playing, it, and there's certain you know people who are just like the passion to just play as long as they possibly can is there. 
I don't have that. Like, it's really painful now to play. It, it, it really hurts the next day. And, like, what am I going to play outside? Like, my whole game is predicated on, like, shooting the three. When you play outside, you can't shoot the three as well because there's always some sort of element. I'm not that quick. So, like, I want to be good when I play. And so there's always these swirling factors for why I don't play anymore. So what I do is I take my basketball and I go shoot and I shoot free throws and I shoot threes and I remind myself that I once was good without having that destroyed by other people guarding me. Sure. That's fair. Because I'm, I'm about to go play right now. And I was wondering how you okay, reconcile. You're 27 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I was, I was just going to reconcile how, how to – because you know the game and you know how to play efficiently. But when you're on the court, I, usually, I just don't think as – I would hate myself as, a, as an analyst. If I was an analyst watching myself play basketball, I would hate myself. And I wondered if you, if you felt the same way about yourself. Oh, that's very good self-awareness. Um, I, actually, I actually feel like I was a pretty um, efficient player. And I, I think – if an analyst watched me over the years, they'd be like, oh my goodness, she takes a lot of charges. She always makes the right pass. Like she's super slow and she can't jump and she can't, she doesn't have any game off the dribble, but like she's pretty smart. That, that would be the analyst's take. So Hollis, Tom- Hollis Thompson. Like, yeah. Well, that's too that's, deep for her well, again. That's too deep. Yeah. That's, that's too deep. Somebody, oh, I think it was, wait, no, who was it? So it was, um, WIP, uh, like, the, the morning crew from when I was there. I forget yep. who was doing it then. Angela. They asked me to compare. Yeah, Angela was doing it. He asked me to compare myself to an NBA player, which is a really hard thing to do because, like, they're all better than me. And I compared myself sure. at the time to Ray Allen. Like, not because I think I'm as good as Ray Allen. I'm like, he shoots threes really well. Like, and he's pretty efficient in his decision making. And they just laughed and laughed and laughed. Like, there's no <laughs> great answer. There's no great answer no. to, like, compare yourself to an NBA player unless you pick someone who, like, everyone <laughs> – you know, thinks is awful. But, like, I didn't do that. So that's a tough question. Well, go ahead, Mike. Who are you most like? I, was gonna, I, well. I, play, I, I play a little like a little more like Evan Turner than, I, than I'd care to say. <laughs> there you go. There, there you go. Like, that's one that we can all agree. Like, I don't know what, how he's making $17 million a year in Portland right now, but God bless good him. for Evan Turner. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> well, uh, we thank you for being so generous with your time. The book is um, What Made Maddie Run, and it's awesome, and it's available everywhere that you get books. And then uh, you have a million things. You're Around the Horn and then the Trifecta on ESPN Radio. Are you still doing the podcast, uh, Free Cookies? Uh, is that podcast yeah. still happening? Wow. So you have we just a m- finished season one, and season two is coming in the next like you know month or two. So, so yes. Well, congratulations on all the success, and uh, congratulations on a great book. And uh, take, please take at least five minutes to enjoy uh, to enjoy the success. All right, thanks, Mike, and have fun playing, Mike. I hope you play well. Thanks, Kate. Uh, yeah, thanks, Kate. Appreciate it, dude. All right, bye, guys. Bye, bye. Well, that was great. Thanks to Kate. She's great. Yeah, she's the best. She's... Have I told you my John Stark story? I don't know if I ever have. It, wait, didn't you get like a uh, a birthday greeting for somebody? A yeah, John Stark's video birthday. Was, I have, I have told you. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember what happened. That was when that's all you did on uh, what was what's that platform? That's how we talked to Eric Snow. It's um, Thuzio. Thuzio, which still exists. It's just a different thing now. All right, let's quick do the LL commercial and then quick go over the Christmas and Twitter things. Do you do you have time for those? Yeah, really quick though. I gotta I gotta go play. Okay, LL Pavorsky Jewelers. 
the greatest jeweler this side of the Mississippi. I don't know anything west of the Mississippi, but uh, I do. I do. I'm I'm west of the Mississippi. Greatest jeweler there too. Wow, the best jeweler. Get your engagement ring from LL Pavorsky. He's a wonderful person and a wonderful jeweler. Forty six, right? So Ricky Sanchez listeners have done that so far. Two one five six two seven two two five two is the number to call to set up an appointment. Seven zero seven Walnut Street in Philly is the store. LLPavorsky.com is the website. You can call him, email him, whatever you do. Um, sorry, LL, this is a quicker ad because we got to get to this other stuff. But um, And for every podcast, LL makes generous donations to the Alzheimer's Association of the Delaware Valley and the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. LL Pavorsky Jewelers. The Sixers Day game, Christmas Day game of jewelers. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. All right. So do you have any Christmas takes first before we get to the I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy that it happened this fast. It's crazy that it happened this fast. The fact that, I mean, cr- playing on Christmas Day is something that we've joked about and on Twitter we've joked about as like a, it's happening, Hinky's plan is working, process is correct, all that stuff, as, like a, as, a, as a validation. I remember I think Weber might have pitched it for, for a um, – one of the retweet Armageddon stuff back back before it became public. I think it was like a what if they get a Christmas Day game? That would be that would be insane. That would be validation that like we're in the right in the right place. It's it's crazy it happened this fast. I mean I know it's the Knicks. I know it's the it's the first game of the day, right? Yeah, first game. But that's I mean it's always a, it's like Knicks fucking Pacers usually. So this is I mean we're gonna win by forty five. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, I, I always think we. I don't. I don't know if historically this proves that. It always feels like we play bad at noon. But um, yeah, but uh, yeah, and you know what? The Knicks are bad, but the Knicks are clearly a high, like they're a high profile team. Whether they're bad, it's sure. funny. Everybody was like, "We always. shouldn't be playing the Knicks. We should be playing the Lakers." I was like, "Wait a minute, the Lakers suck too." Uh, yeah. You know, the Lakers are bad too. So being being on Christmas Day is really unbelievable. And I broke the story. Okay, <laughs> my mom asked me if I wanted to, because I'll probably be. In town over that over that uh, few yeah. weeks, whatever. Yeah. Um, my mom asked me if I wanted to go because it's at the garden and we could like drive up or whatever. But th- it sort of defeats the purpose, right? Like, yeah, watching gonna, it on TV is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. So I'm not gonna go. Yeah, and I, I, I there's a question. Mom. There's an Eagles game that night too. That I uh, there's a home Eagles game against the Raiders. So it'll be uh, you know it's a it's a good it gives you something to do all of Christmas. So it's a full day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the Ben Simmons thing. So here's what happens. So I, uh, Eric Golden, who uh, is a producer over at WIP and actually sat in the room for two and a half hours while I read reviews at one point just because he's a kind soul, came over to me at work and he's like, hey, friend of mine just saw Ben Simmons at the airport. Um, and this isn't the point of the story. I'm just laying out the story. She asked him for a picture. He said no. Um, she took a picture of him getting t- Chinese food at the airport. And I was like, that's hilarious. Send it to me, the picture. And he sends it to me, and I go, is it okay with her if I post the picture? So I post the picture. So he responds back, "Um, if you want a picture, you should just ask for one, hashtag creepy. Now, I personally kept back the information that the person asked him for a picture, and he said no. I don't want to like – I don't care. If he wants to say no, let him say no. Like – you know, not not all the time do you want to take pictures with people. But it was the fact that he said, if you want a picture, just ask. So I responded back, thing is, she asked you for a picture and you said no. So my thing was, the reaction, I don't care. What, and so Ben Simmons later, so he, uh, I tweeted out later, 
I didn't mean to cause any trouble. I thought it was funny that Ben Simmons was getting an egg roll at 9.30 in the morning in the, in the airport. Um, sorry, Ben, like no harm meant or something. And he responds back, it was rice and chicken. At least get it right or something about what he does. <laughs> so, which, which seemed to me like he... I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that part. Okay. So it's, it's funny that he's correcting the order. It seemed to me like at that point, he was, um, he was acknowledging that it was funny. I responded back like, you know, trust the process, you know, blah, blah, blah. That was it. But like people's reactions were completely out of bounds. Like this is why nobody wants to play here. Um, You know, let the guy live, blah, 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 blah. Like we've been posting pictures of Joel Embiid at bars without his consent, like for the last three years. You know, anytime somebody sees a sixer out in public, they take a picture of it and they post it. I would have thought it was, now, is that a great way to live? No, maybe not. But it's certainly like, that's what happens. I did not post a picture of the guy in the bathroom on a date. He was just fucking standing there. Will you people fucking relax? Just relax. Like, that's all I will say is just relax. So some guy responds back to me like, you know, you don't have a right to post this, blah, 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 blah. And I I responded back to him. Um... I didn't see you throwing a temper tantrum when Joel Embiid pictures have been all over the internet for three years. So unfortunately, Ben Simmons was in that thread. And due to Twitter not showing you, like it doesn't show you who anything is to anymore. It just shows the thread. He goes, he responds again. I see you. You took what I said too seriously. It's just Twitter crying, laughing emoji. And so it was a whole fucking thing. All I will say is people... One thing I said to him in a response, there's Rebel. One thing I said to him in a response was, you should be really happy at the defense people came to you for. Because you would have thought, like, I put a tack on the guy's, like, chair and filmed it and put it on the internet or something. Like, or that I willfully hurt the guy or something. It was the most amazing reaction I've ever seen in my entire life. So that's all. This is why, this is why you never at athletes. I didn't add never. him. I didn't add him. You, did, you didn't at all? No. Uh, no, even the original picture. I did not add him. I don't add athletes unless, like, it's complimentary. Or, like, but I don't, I don't think I even ever Even then, add. it's still gross. Yeah, I, I, I never add athletes. Ever. Even, my, yeah. even my, like— So someone sent it to him or he found it or what? Maybe he found it. Maybe somebody sent it to him. But for what it's worth, as a credit to him, like, his tone was sort of laughy the whole time anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think his tone was, was bad. He wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't deranting you. No, 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 he was not. He was, he was not ethering me, as it were. Um, it was just, uh, no, I, did, I didn't even at him in the, uh, just thought it was funny that he got an egg roll. That was a completely separate tweet without him tagged in it as well. I did not tag him in anything. So, so that's the whole story. All right. Well, now I got it. Right. Now I got the info. Do you want to hold relationship uh, advice tonight? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Do you yeah, have a comment? Yeah, go, I got to go, go play basketball. Okay. Thanks to uh, Kate um, Fagan. Get her book. That was great. She's yep. awesome. Yep. Um, that's all I got. This has been the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, proudly brought to you by L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, where Rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners go and get engaged. 707 Walnut in Philly. Always at LLPavorsky.com. Uh, are you down with TTP? It's going to be a whole other year. It, what month is it? August? Yeah. Something happens in August. Yeah, no, Something August. happens in August. So That's what I'll say. Yep. All right. Something Goodbye. happens in August. Goodbye. Go play basketball. Bye. Like I said, won't you head, son? It only takes a second.
my mind. It's complex, but I'm about to kick the full effects. So back up, back up, let me get my train of thought. I feel chill, but I feel like I'm getting ill. I got spain from the blood rushing through my brain. It's no surprise when I feel my temper start to rise. I'm about